Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, brought to you by Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific region's leading graduate policy school. And if you want to reach new heights in your policymaking career and study alongside some brilliant minds from all around the world, you should definitely consider joining us. You can find out more about our fantastic range of degrees and short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. And I've got one of those brilliant minds right here with me in the studio is my co-host Sue Regan. Hello, Sue. How are you? Hello, Martin. I'm well, thank you. Sue is, of course, a PhD scholar here at Crawford School. Now, Sue, we always like to start these podcasts by looking back over the week just gone. So what's caught your eye in the sort of wide world of public policy over the last week? So so last week we heard uh, Morrison and the Australian government announce a, a $3.8 billion infrastructure stimulus, um, which everyone's excited about, um, you know, those of us who are interested in the economy. It's an early, um, early Christmas present. It is an early Christmas present, you know, with, and the idea is that it will also – uh, help speed up projects. Uh, so we'll hope to see some of this money materialise soon. But this week, the Business Council of Australia um, told the government that they should select 10 regional towns uh, to power the economy outside of Sydney and Melbourne. Um, and these towns should get special status uh, for investment. And they were talking about you know, Geelong, Ballarat, uh, Newcastle and others. Um, and I thought this was just an interesting development. Um, you know, Jennifer Westercott talked about how we should be focusing on places and not projects. Um, and yeah, it's, it's relevant to what we're going to be talking about today with Helen Sullivan. That would be quite a shift in focus, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it suggests um, picking winners for, you know, for towns to have this special status, which is very kind of controversial in some ways that we can, you know, that governments can pick winners and not leave it to the market. So, yeah, so it's, uh, I think, an interesting development. How was this idea received, do you think, by government? Yeah, we've not heard much in terms of a government response yet. Um, but, you know, the Business Council of Australia generally have the ear of government. So I think somewhere it will be being listened to. Great news if you're in Geelong or Newcastle then. Indeed. Although they've not, you know, uh, the Business Council just gave some examples. It's kind of, you know, down to government who would they would do the selecting. Okay, so before we get into this week's podcast, I just want to remind you to have a look at our brand new design of Policy Forum Pod's website, policyforum.net. Last week, we celebrated our fifth anniversary. We launched our all-new Policy Futures in Focus section on the site. And on that section, we've invited some authors who've previously written for Policy Forum to 
look at what lies ahead in their specific area of public policy and what policymakers should be focusing on in the coming years. There's heaps of great content on there for you to feast your eyes on. So go check it out if you haven't done so already. It's policyforum.net. Now, today on the podcast, we're going to pick up on some things that Sue has just been talking about. We're going to have a look at revitalizing urban centers. Despite the fact that more and more people are moving to cities globally, some places are increasingly struggling with slower population growth, lower incomes, and higher unemployment rates uh, than others. A dramatic example of this development is, uh, of course, Detroit in the United States, which has seen a catastrophic population loss over the past 70 years from a peak of over 1.8 million in the 1950s to around 670,000 in 2019. In Australia, an example, albeit a less dramatic one for urban decline, is Dandenong, a diverse multicultural suburb of Melbourne that has been facing urban decline due to a number of social and economic challenges such as an uncompetitive retail sector and an ageing housing infrastructure. So today we want to ask... How can policymakers help revitalize urban centers that are currently declining? And what lessons can we learn from Dandenong in particular? And we have a very special guest to take on this. Very interesting question, haven't we, Sue? We do indeed. Um, Today, our guest is Professor Helen Sullivan. Uh, She's the director here at the Crawford School of Public Policy, um, well known to us all. Uh, She's also the newly appointed president of the Asia and the Pacific Policy Society. Uh, She is also a fellow of the Higher Education Academy in the UK and of the Institute of Public Administration here in Australia. This promises to be a really interesting discussion, so I'm really looking forward to it. How about we just get into it? Welcome, Helen. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here, Sue. Despite an ever-growing number of rural to urban migrants, um, some urban places are struggling with urban decline. You know, these areas are disadvantaged in a number of ways, uh, the low population growth. Uh, you know, the most famous example that comes to my mind is uh, Detroit in the US, which has undergone a dramatic decline over recent decades. How does this kind of urban decline come about? Oh, well, it comes about um, through a range of reasons um, and, you know, principally uh, it, they're economic uh, reasons and, and certainly the, uh, the case that, uh, that, that we worked in um, central Dandenong in Melbourne, that is um, both a reason uh, why migration happened to, to that area. There was employment. It was a very um, strong area for, for automotive manufacturing. And that was one of a number of reasons why it was attractive to, to migrants, not the only one, but an important pull. Um, but of course, when the economic circumstances change, um, that changes the, the attractiveness of the area. And so what you see in places like Detroit, which are of course extreme cases, are the complete collapse um, of the, the economy. Um, but also linked to that, the inability of uh, the government in whatever form, local, state, 
to be able to act and intervene um, powerfully to uh, to address some of that decline. Um, and I think certainly um, there are extreme cases. Detroit is probably uh, one of the most significant um, where you see that combination of uh, economic decline with the, either the lack of competence or capacity of the state or the lack of preparedness of the state to, to intervene. And how much does austerity uh, have a, a role to play here? I know your work has kind of taken this really interesting angle of looking at how austerity policies might affect urban decline. That's a really great question. I mean, the, the project that uh, this case study is is part of, the, the study of Central Dandenong in Melbourne, um, is a, an international study that was funded by the Economic and Social Science Research Council in the UK. And it came out of uh, a strong concern that there was in the UK following the global financial crisis to really examine uh, what the the impacts and the consequences of austerity were. Um, and we were fortunate enough to be part of a, an international team led by Professor Jonathan Davis at De Montfort University in Leicester, um, looking at the different experiences of austerity um, across the world. And so there are eight case studies. Um, and you may wonder, I mean, listeners who are are familiar with Melbourne um, and indeed Australia may think, hang on, austerity didn't happen um, in Australia in the same way that the global financial crisis didn't happen on, in Australia. And that's quite correct. Um, and one of the reasons for picking an Australian case and indeed uh, this Australian case uh, was partly because it was an outlier. It was uh, the an example of somewhere uh, where um, the, the, the pressures, while felt, uh, were not experienced in the same way as they were in Athens, for example, or Baltimore, which were two of our other uh, case studies. But nonetheless, um, what we found was the narrative of austerity um, played very powerfully. And certainly when we started doing this case study in 2013-14, the, the, the fieldwork, that was the time of uh, Tony Abbott's first uh, budget and with Joe Hockey, which was very much described as by uh, critical commentators as a, an austerity budget. And so one of the things that happened was that there was an environment created uh, in Australia of fiscal, what we've called fiscal conservatism, which is not new. I mean, that's a feature of Australian uh, politics and economic management for some time, but was certainly something that became much more present and certainly shaped how people were thinking about uh, decisions about resource allocation and, and and, uh, how best to use limited resources. I, I, I want to hear more about um, Dandenong. Um, you know, this is a, a suburb which I think is about 30 kilometres southeast of Melbourne. It's been declining over the past 20 years or so. Um, and you've used this suburb, as you said, in your recent research. And what what did cause the urban decline in Dandenong? Uh, well, principally, it was um, you know economic decline. It was the, the fact that the uh, the principal uh, economic base for the prosperity in the in the area and and um Dandenong has been described and and indeed has aspirations to return to being you know a key city in uh, the state of Victoria and indeed in the state of uh, in the the um the area of greater melbourne so it it's um, you know while people think about melbourne um, very often as the, the bit in the central business district, you know, the most livable city, uh, well, until recently. Um, you know, there's much more to Melbourne than that. And, you know, Mel, part of Melbourne's prosperity is reliant on these, these, these outer areas, which are significant in terms of population, but also significant in terms of economic activity. And, um, because of the, 
uh, certainly the role of the the automotive and related engineering industries that that had uh, set up there. Um, it was a, a, a very uh, strong magnet uh, for people, uh, and including uh, migrants. And you know, migration to uh, to Danzinong is not a new feature. This is something that has been happening over generations. It's just the nature of the uh, the migration has changed. But it's always been known as a place that is uh, welcoming uh, to migrant communities, and and that um, that has not changed, uh, we found, even though the the circumstances, the economic circumstances um, had changed. And that was one of the reasons why uh, there was this very significant investment made in the area, um, which began in terms of planning in the late 1990s, but certainly started in earnest in in 2005 with a huge injection of, of funding from the Victorian government uh, to really try and develop a new approach to to revitalising an area that was in um, serious at serious risk of, of decline, both in terms of employment but also educational levels of attainment were falling, and people were as people do uh, when areas become um, unattractive. You know, people were thinking about leaving and, and moving to to other areas, so it it was seriously at risk of what you might call sort of irreversible decline. Um, And the state government took the view that in order to respond to that, it had to act in a way that um, it's rarely acted in terms of the amount of resource that was was put into the area. And... Has it been successful? Has there been a revitalization of Dandenong? Uh, well, we say yes, um, and we are we're very well aware that um, the, there are other colleagues who have uh, done work in this area who disagree with us and take a, a, a very different view. Um, our assessment, though, is is both based on um, the the evidence of uh, what what's possible. Um, as opposed to perhaps what might be desirable. Um, but also there is evidence to suggest, and again, this is not um, particular to central Dandenong or even Australia. Um, you know, there is evidence to suggest both from the UK and other places that in circumstances of severe decline, you, what, what is required is a, a very significant response. Um, and that means that governments, and it invariably is governments, um, have to find significant resources over and above uh, what you often find associated with revitalization programs and urban regeneration programs, which tend to be uh, things which, though significant, are really uh, doing work around the edges. Um, this was much more uh, an attempt to really get at okay if we if if we understand that there is major decline here then what we need to address is you know transport basic infrastructure um, and the recreation of an environment that is attractive for the private sector to come in and invest and that's where i think there has been um and less it, the the pro, the program's been less successful than people would have wanted and certainly uh, when we were feeding back this work to um all of the stakeholders at different levels. That was one of the things that they very clearly uh, pointed out, that while there's been a great deal of collaboration um, across sectors, including the private sector, the major sort of um, private sector investment that it was hoped this public sector-led 
revitalization would produce has not yet happened. Uh, and so from that point of view, I think there is general agreement that uh, the program has not achieved quite what it set out to. But, you know, it's not over yet. These things are very long term. And it's certainly the case that at the moment, uh, the area is again experiencing the prospect of further decline um, because, uh, you know, traditional industries are still diminishing. And so what, what the gap, if you like, is uh, will there be uh, a replacement industry or industries that can come in and, and provide the kind of economic base that engineering used to for that area? Um, the state can do a lot and has done a lot, but of course can only do so much. Um, what do you think the takeaways are for policymakers on this in, on this project to uh, revitalise Dandelong? Um, well, I think, you know, we make a number of, a number of key points. And, and I think there, there are the things for us are both about revitalisation in general, but also revitalisation in an area that is so diverse. Um, and that the, one of the most powerful findings for us was the ways in which um, cultural pluralism is so important, both as an ingredient for revitalization, um, but also as a as a as a way, if you like, of fulfilling the promise that Australia um, so often makes uh, about being a tolerant and welcoming and, and diverse society. I mean, it is one of those cities we would argue uh, where multiculturalism can work, um, but to do that requires an awful lot of, of, of effort and resource. Um, and that work is ongoing. It's not work that you can do once and, and then forget about it. It's work that, as, as in the way with all um, societies, you know, it's, it's work that continues to need to be done. So, so for us, there's an important issue there, which um, we can come back to if you like, about cultural pluralism. But but in terms of, um, you know, what are the lessons for policymakers more generally? Um, we would argue they're not anything new, but, you know, they are lessons that, you know, policymakers keep needing to hear. Um, and some of that's about, um, you know, the things I've already mentioned, having an active commitment by the government at all levels to address this. Um, you know, governments that and states that, that step back and expect the private sector uh, to fill the gap, you know, that doesn't happen. Um, it may well be that that what people would be what people wish to happen, but that doesn't happen. And, and certainly um, what was significant here was both the, the 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 level of resource that was put in, but more importantly, um, the fact that this was about a collaboration between all levels of government, um, and that rarely happens successfully. Um, there was a huge effort um, on the part of both the local and the state governments uh, to make this relationship work and to focus on um, redistributing resources in the right way. And that meant for the local government, the giving up of, of some powers, you know, and, and local government, as you know, in Australia has very few powers. So giving up some planning power to the state was actually quite a significant thing to do. Um, the chief executive of the uh, of the local council does not regret that and sees what's happened as being um, an absolute vindication of that decision because what happened as a result was that there was genuine collaborative planning now it didn't always work there were you know obviously things go wrong uh, but overall um, they felt that the benefits they gained in terms of you know getting the planning process that was rather more efficient than it might otherwise have been 
um, was certainly um, worthwhile. So there's something there about, you know, government commitment across the levels um, and that that meaning people have to have to trust each other and to compromise. And both of those things are in often in short supply. Um, the other what, was, thing, what was the investment in? Was it a housing led? Ah, now, it... that's a really great point. So the investment was was uh, principally in um, physical infrastructure. Right. But oddly, thinking about it now, and this isn't unusual um, in major revitalization schemes, oddly not, housing was not a priority. Um, so it was transport, it was the it was the the creation of parcels of land that were then appropriate for development. So there's an awful lot of work that goes into, you know, the identification of land, uh, the parceling it up in particular ways that makes it attractive and appealing for a particular kinds of, of economic activity or other activity. So it was a lot of work that you probably... I mean, the transport you would see certainly because of the um, the changes to the uh, the railway network and and you know the new station and, and all of that. Um, but a lot of the work you 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 wouldn't see until something was built on it. Um, so there's an awful lot of preparatory work that has to be done that requires a lot of resource um, that where the benefits are not seen for some time, and that can of course mean that citizens quite rightly can get very frustrated with well, you know. Where's all this money gone and what's happening? But so the, the, the emphasis was both on um, physical infrastructure in terms of preparing land for development, but also there was significant development in public works. So uh, there is a remarkable uh, set of public spaces now um, in central Dandenong, some of which existed before, um, but some and, and have been revitalized themselves. I mean, the, um, the drum theater is, is probably a great ex- example of that. Um, but there's also uh, an extraordinary public library. And anybody who is the slightest bit uh, skeptical about the value of public libraries in the 21st century only needs to go there to see what libraries do um, and the role that they play as uh, meeting places and places where uh, you can learn. Um, I mean, the borrowing of books is is, is a sort of you know, subsidiary activity, yeah. um, but the role that um, that those places play as as um, yeah meeting places and as safe spaces for people, um, it, I think is. Is something that that is probably accepted more in Australia and in the United States than perhaps it is in other places. And certainly, again, I'm thinking here of the UK where the public library system has been completely destroyed. Um, but the power of uh, the state to enable the creation of those spaces that are then made available to people to use for whatever, whatever purpose um, – that's been really, really important. So it's both about the, yes, the building of things, but it's also about the creation of space. Yeah. Housing was something that was probably um, not thought about sufficiently. And that's been something that has been addressed um, more recently, because quite clearly, um, if one is wanting to maintain a diverse um, population um, and, and, and a, a sort of thriving community, you need to have a diversity of, of, of housing options. And that's been something that's been attended to perhaps later in the piece than you would have liked, uh, but is happening now. Can I take you back to cultural pluralism? You've said how uh, you found it was a key ingredient in the revitalisation, but what does that look like and how, how do you bring it about? 
Um, well, what it looks like is, um, firstly, you need political support for it, and that needs to be bipartisan. So you have to have an acceptance that um, this is not something that will change as the as, as the political winds change. And that's not so much an issue locally, but certainly, you know, whenever the, the state government changes, um, there is always concern that um, there will be a different approach to multiculturalism and, or cultural pluralism or whatever the, the language is that's used. Um, so having that ongoing bipartisan support, even though it may change its um, emphasis, um, is really important. But what we've just been talking about, um, housing and housing diversity, is really is a really important element to this. So, so the, what we're talking about with, when we're talking about cultural pluralism is is often it's it's about thinking through the basic things, but thinking about them in a um, in a slightly different way. So, if you're thinking about the value of a diverse community, then what kind of housing stock do you need, and how do you how do you set about designing and building that in a way that it remains affordable and accessible. Currently, Dandenong is experiencing um, a level of gentrification, which is putting pressure on that housing and is meaning that that, that people who otherwise um, would have been able to afford to live there are now finding themselves squeezed out. And that is unfortunate. Um, but in general, um, levels uh, of uh, levels of rental affordability remain um, at, at uh, levels that are much less than elsewhere in um, certainly Melbourne, uh, Greater Melbourne. Um, so that's a really important element. And, and really thinking about how the extra things, which is when people talk, think about cultural pluralism, they often think about a completely separate set of activities. Now, that's important. And, and certainly, um, the funding of things like the interfaith network, um, focusing attention on particular, um, issues and, uh, whether it's about, access to women uh, to particular services, whether it's thinking about. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, I mean, a great deal has been made of the role of, of food as both a, um, a cultural and social um, unifier in the in the area, but also a massive opportunity for economic development. So there are now tours to central Dandenong um, from elsewhere in Melbourne for people to experience, you know, the markets and the diversity of food. Um, and you can be very cynical about that, but um, practically it brings in important economic revenue. But it is also a way of, of, in, of introducing people to a variety of um, experiences they wouldn't otherwise have. But also importantly, for the communities that live in central Dandenong, it, it provides an opportunity for um, making a living, but it also provides an opportunity for that coming together. Um, but that needs to be actively supported. Um, and so there's a great deal of time and effort and money put into um, both relationship building through things like the Interfaith Network, but also thinking through how do we design aged care services? that are appropriate for the population that we have as opposed to appropriate for a sort of one-size-fits-all population. So it's really 
considering both the mainstream, if you like, public services and how they're designed in a way that's more appropriate, uh, but also then thinking about, well, what else do we need to do? Mm. Now, we're not saying, um, and I'm sure there'll be lots of people, including some of my very dear colleagues who will be screaming at the radio saying, no, 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 this is... This is all wrong. Um, we're not saying that the things are perfect at all. There are significant problems still of of unemployment in the in the area. There are significant problems in terms of racism and barriers to employment for particular groups, and there are um, ongoing problems, um, particularly around things like family violence. Um, but again, they're not particular to that area, but they are uh, they are manifest in a particular way, and so. Um, we're certainly not saying everything is perfect, but what we are saying is that having thinking about cultural pluralism as a, a key ingredient in revitalization means that your revitalization is likely to be much more effective and um, you can achieve some of the objectives you, um, you we say as a society we want to achieve around multiculturalism. A, a, a report by the Victorian Auditor General concluded recently that uh, despite some progress, um, there's a distinct lack of sufficiently clear, agreed and monitored performance standards. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? And how can we uh, as policymakers help ensure that some some of the short term successes that they've been uh, turn into longer term positive outcomes. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's always good to have auditors generals to remind you of, you know, the need for performance and evidence and indicators. And that's certainly been one of the things that, that has fallen away um, from this project, which was monitored and evaluated, certainly, uh, because I mean, you're talking about huge amounts of money. So apart from anything else, you know, there was a need to account for that. Um, that that has um, that ceased um, a while ago, and and you know as we know, um, when you're you're working in constrained circumstances, then you know one of the first things to go is the evaluation of projects because that's seen as something that you know well we can do without. As an academic, I would always say it's really important to you know to know that you have an evidence base that is is supportive of what you're doing or is identifying the gaps that you need to fill. Um, so absolutely, I would agree um, that uh, there's there's a lack of evidence and a lack of focus on performance. I think sometimes auditor generals um, focus on a very narrow range of indicators, and there you know there are other ways of exploring what success looks like. But yes, nonetheless, important to have evidence. Um, when you're talking about urban revitalization, you're never talking about the short term. You're always talking about the long term, um, and we know. Uh, from repeated experiments all over the world that, um, you know, these kind of five-year, 10-year programs, they can, they can make an impact. But often, if they're not sustained over time, it's, it's almost as if they were never there when you go back five, 10 years later. Uh, and so, yes, the, there are short-term benefits and they're important. I think we would say, um, in Dandenong that, um, the commitment is there over the longer term, the partnerships, the relationships, which are so important. I mean, you know, one of the things, again, it's no surprise to anybody who's worked in this field for a long time, but, you know, what makes these things work is the interpersonal relationships, the fact that people are prepared to invest time and effort in 
um, building relationships, in building trust, in developing capabilities, in being able to see the world from other people's points of view, in, in developing the capacity to listen. Um, you know, these are all things which are bracketed off as soft skills, which is a phrase that I absolutely hate, um, because they're incredibly difficult things to do. You know, we assume somehow that we can just all do them. Well, if we could all do them and we could all practice them, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. Um, they are very, very difficult things to do and they require a huge amount of effort. And one of the things that has been very impressive to me um, is the extent to which that's been recognised, um, certainly at the local level uh, in Dandenong and um, is supported. You know, people are encouraged to think about the value of these skills and encouraged to develop those skills as well as the development skills and the project management skills and all the other things that we know are important. Uh, now, how you measure those things, of course, is incredibly difficult. And I don't think any Auditor General's report is ever going to be able to measure that. But you see it in the experience of being um, in that environment. And, and one of the measures, I think, uh, is, for example, you know, who wants to work in local government in that area and the diversity of, of, um, of employment patterns in local government. Uh, you know, that I think tells you a lot about, um, the power of these skills and capacities to both regenerate the area, but also to change the way in which we think about how public services work. So it, it, it seems that, uh, collaboration between different levels of government and between other Actors involved in the re the uh, uh, revitalization were very important. What about um, engagement with the local communities? Was that done well in Dandenong? Um, again, you get varying reports. Um, I mean, for us, it's absolutely essential, and certainly for um, uh, people in in local government, there was there was never any question that this was something that um, was going to be done without. Um, public engagement, public support, public involvement, and all of the, the major projects certainly, um, are evidence of, you know, they either emerged from demands by the community, uh, to that these things should be developed or, um, emerged as a result of, you know, extensive consultation, um, on, I mean, the market was a great example of, you know, where, you know, the Dandenong market was something that was seen to be, you know, incredibly important symbolically, but also economically and socially, but also in decline. So how do you go about regenerating that in a way that, uh, means that it is both going to be an, an important economic engine, but also something that is socially and culturally significant. So, you know, you couldn't have done that um, just by having a bunch of planners decide what it might look like. You know, it was essential that there was uh, extensive community involvement. And I think that's evident in a range of projects, whether it's, you know, the Afghan Bazaar streetscape or what's called the Little India Precinct. You know, all of these things mm. emerged from um, different groups uh, Sometimes proactively um, seeking support, um, and in other uh, in, in other occasions, um, being involved in extensive consultation. Now, some of those processes didn't work as well as they could have, and you know these things are always problematic. Car parking is, you know, and again, it's always the small things, you know, decisions that were made about car parking, um, which have a massive impact on who can access what services. Um, have been really problematic. Uh, and certainly when we went back and, and did some work 
Uh, that that was one of the things that you know people were just so frustrated about. You know, why have we lost so much car parking? Why is it so expensive? Um, so there are always things that, um, and it's usually the things that aren't glamorous that that become problematic. Uh, but also very important things that probably aren't seen. So a lot of the um, the funding that goes in. Um, to supporting um, English language teaching, to supporting uh, the development of programs uh, for for women um, in terms of employment and education, things which you know not high profile, um, probably don't cost that much money, but are essential mm-hmm. to you know to have, um, and not just to have for a short period of time, but to have for a, you know an ongoing uh, period, and for those things to be led and run by. Um, organizations that are appropriate to do that. And that, again, requires you to have really extensive networks into what is an incredibly diverse community and, um, you know, is becoming more diverse uh, because migration is not stopping um, and, and migrants come from, from different places. And so there's a constant need uh, for both the um, the government and non-governmental actors to be thinking all the time about um, how do you adapt to New, newer communities. How do, how do you make this a place that continues to be welcoming? And that's one of the striking things about Dandenong is this emphasis on we, you know, we we will continue to be welcoming. Um, not you know, this is who we are, and we don't want anybody else. Um, and that's been something that's been present, you know, for generations. Unfortunately, we are rapidly running out of time, Helen. Um, but, you know, I'm going to ask you a typically hard question at the end. What What is the single most effective thing do you think policymakers can do to revitalise urban areas? Nothing for the first year. Um, I think one of the big mistakes that uh, policymakers make is um, they have all of these ideas um, you know they're incredibly skilled. They've they've spent a long time learning their craft. They have an opportunity, so they they want to do things. And of course, they're under pressure to do things for their ministers and so on. But uh, doing nothing for a decent period of time and just listening and learning is much more effective in the longer term. And one final question uh, for you, Helen. Um, as you know, we keep a list of podcasts that our listeners enjoy uh, in our Facebook podcast group. Um, and we'd, of course, like to add your suggestion. What What is on your playlist at the moment? Uh, well, uh, the podcast I listen to probably most regularly um, and indeed every day, I would say, um, I'll I'll go back to it, is a podcast called The West Wing Weekly, uh, which is, as it suggests, um, a podcast that follows each episode of The West Wing um, and not only interrogates uh, the the episode in terms of uh, the the drama and the storylines and the and the characters, but actually delves into some of the policy questions that that come up um, as part of the um, the narrative of um, of the West Wing, and and you know anybody who uh, is a is a policy wonk like I am um, will know about the West Wing, and will probably have watched the series. Um, and certainly, uh, as a um, if you can't get enough of the West Wing, I would heartily recommend this podcast. Helen, thank you. I, that was such a fascinating insight uh, uh, into Dandenong and, you know, wider questions of urban revitalisation. Um, you know, and I'd love to hear more about it. Um, thank you for coming in today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Welcome back. And thanks once again, Helen Sullivan, for that really interesting discussion. Lots to unpick there, so. Yes, I thought it was uh, fascinating. Uh, you know, in particular, the role of cultural pluralism and this idea that that's so important in urban revitalization. Um, but also all the, you know, all the other things that you need to get right when you're trying to, uh, revitalize these, these areas that have been in decline for a long time. Yeah. It was a really good discussion. Listeners, we're keen to get your thoughts on what we've talked about today. You can reach out to us. We are on Facebook. That's the best way to do it. Just type in Policy Forum Pod in the search bar and join us there. You can also contact us on Twitter where we're apps Policy Forum or send us an email podcast at policyforum.net. And if you've ever thought about getting engaged in urban revitalization through effective and targeted policy, you might want to consider doing a postgraduate degree with us here at Crawford School. Our Master of Public Policy offers a variety of specialisations and there is sure to be one that's going to fit your interests. Go check them out. Crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, Let's get on to some of the questions and comments that we've had via our website, Policy Forum, and via the podcast group over the last couple of weeks. I want to pick your brains on these, Sue. The first is on an article called A Great University is First Made by Its Students. It was, of course, by Professor Brian Schmidt, who is the Vice Chancellor here at the Australian National University. And in it, he writes that universities uniquely are where research and teaching meet and that we need to bring together teachers, research researchers, learners and leaders in a creative environment of knowledge generation and exchange. And we had a comment from Dale Bailey on Policy Forum who wrote, but what if a great researcher is not a great teacher? I had a few of those as an undergraduate. What do you make of that, Sue? Yes, well, I mean, I agree with Dale. I think we've probably all had, uh, a, a, you know, a, an individual who may well be a great researcher, but is perhaps not a great teacher. Um, but I do think we're making strides in helping, uh, teachers be better teachers here at the ANU. Um, you know, there's a lot of investment going into making sure that people, uh, can be researchers and great teachers. And, you know, and it's my own experience that, um, to be a really great teacher, it helps to be able to draw on your own research. Um, so yeah, so but a, but a good comment from Dale. But these are distinct skills that people need to learn, right? They are, um, and you know, and we need to invest in people building up those skills. Um, I mean, I I think uh, it you know, would be good if there were opportunities for people to specialise more. Um, but I think there's, you know, what whatever system we have, we need to make sure that we are helping people be both great researchers and great teachers. Well, thanks so much for the comment, Dale. Really appreciate that. The next I want to turn to is another article which we put on Policy Forum. We've talked about this a few times, actually. It was the uh, Declaring a Water Emergency, which was written by Quentin Grafton and John Williams. And in the piece, Quentin and John look at Australia's current drought and why effective policy responses seem to be missing in action. They also call on government to declare a water emergency. And we had a comment on Policy Forum from Hemant, who wrote, this is quite a long comment, so uh, apologies, but bear with me. I think it's worth uh, discussing. They wrote, 
The politics of language around drought versus water crisis has a deep meaning. The key question then is when and whether the long-term and multifaceted phenomenon of drought is recognised and a more integrative solution is chosen over the piecemeal and reactive interventions. As a researcher on the science policy interface, I think the research community also has a role beyond presenting facts and offering a critique of policy narratives. Policy action labs and incubation hubs could help better educate policymakers. What do you think of that, Sue? Yeah, I think it's a, a good idea from Hemant. You know, and we're seeing policy action labs um, and other types of hubs emerging, uh, in, you know, particularly in universities around Australia. Um, you know, and they can help educate policymakers. I think we just have to also remember that there is a job of educating researchers and academics as well uh, in terms of how they uh, understand how policy making works, um, you know, and helping them to engage in the in the policy process. Now, in Hemant's Cont there, they talk about being a researcher on the science policy interface and how the research community has this role to play beyond presenting facts and offering a critique of policy narratives. But that's particularly challenging, I would imagine, for scientists who are used to dealing in facts. Yes, they sometimes wade into sort of critiquing polity narratives. How realistic is uh, this sort of suggestion that's being put forward by the by Hemant there? Hmm. I, I mean, you make a good point, Martin. It's not uh, without its challenges, you know. Um, you know, and I think there is a a question about how much we should expect scientists to go beyond. Uh, putting out what they find in their research, um, and I, but I think what's being suggested is really a greater engagement with the policy process and recognizing that their, you know, their research findings and the facts are not going into a kind of void. They're going into a a highly contested political environment, and if you're not aware of that and can't engage in that, then uh, you know it's it's likely that your research will have less impact. Um, so yes, it's challenging. Uh, and I know a lot of scientists who don't feel comfortable going beyond what their research findings are telling us. But yeah, I think we can still explore this kind of murky area where we have to present those facts and uh, try and shape narratives around policy using using those facts. Great. Well, that's a terrific comment. Many thanks, Hemant, for that. And thanks for your thoughts as well there, Sue. And a big thanks to everyone who has commented. We love hearing your thoughts, your suggestions and your ideas. So please do keep sending them in. The best way to do that is on Facebook. We're a Policy Forum pod, but you can also reach us on Twitter, Apps Policy Forum, or email us at podcast at policyforum.net. Now, before we finish with this episode, we of course want to welcome some of our new pod group members on Facebook. So a big hello to Victor Y and McGavin, Kevin Dorr, Marilyn e. Richardson, Jane Hendry, Trass Allerman, Rayleigh O'Neill, and Renee Manning, all of whom have joined us over the last week. Apologies to any of you whose names I have mangled, but welcome to the group. Uh, and special thanks, actually, to Victor, Anne, and Kevin, who have given us some fantastic ideas for future episodes of 
Policy Forum pod. They're definitely going to be added to our whiteboard list. So let me run some of these past you, Sue, and see what you think. Victor suggested we should do something on issues in the Asia-Pacific region, particularly Southeast Asia, and its impact on Australia's national security and its role in the region. Victor, you might also want to check out our sister podcast, which is the National Security Podcast, which covers a lot of these types of issues. Anne wrote, it's all about politics at the moment for me and making sure I know who's pulling the wool over the eyes type of thing and unbiased commentary. And Kevin wrote, politics is so tribal now with the consequence that changing and modernising the economy is seen only being in the context of winners and losers. How do we move beyond that paradigm and what can we as citizens do? How would you like to respond to those three suggestions, Sue? Um, well, for me, I think there's a there's a theme there, um, particularly from Anne and Kevin around uh, the role of politics in public policy, you know, which is a big theme. But I think there's something there that we could really start to perhaps drill down more into, you know, uh, how politics shapes policymaking processes. What are the disadvantages of uh, a very kind of overtly partisan politics. But also, you know, I think there's interesting questions we might explore around uh, the inevitable and the the positive aspects of uh, of politics and the policy process. I, I want to pick up on something that Kevin wrote there. He said that politics is so tribal now. We can certainly think of examples of that. I mean, the obvious one to me is Brexit, which has divided a country basically in two. But do you think it's more broadly true that politics is is tribal and that we I, we only see things in the context of winners and losers? Um. I don't know if it's more tribal than it uh, used to be. I think it's, you know, the the nature of a lot of democratic political systems means that we have political parties that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, contest uh, uh, elections. So it kind of there's, there's a tribalism is almost going to be inevitable. But, you know, I, I think there's also a much wider a set of questions around uh, politics, around how different interests have power, you know, in our society and in our economy. So, you know, I think we need to see it in that broader picture. And it might be interesting to both, you know, look at a future podcast about the, the tribal nature of politics today, but also in this the wider political context. I and mean, I just wonder who those tribes are because mm. political parties themselves have suffered from declining membership over a really long time. So uh, who are these who are the tribes that are uh, that Kevin is referring to here do you think? Mm. Oh, you a good point because I mean I I was I went straight to parties, you know, and political parties, but I think you're right the way that politics is done these days is much more complex and uh we have you know, he may be referring to uh, tribes in civil society as well, you know, whether that's young people, uh, you know, protesting on climate change uh, or other other tribes that exist and are very engaged in our political process. But yeah, good, good point, Martin. <laughs> hey, go me. I made a good point. That's terrific. Well, thanks for that, Sue. Uh, I and that brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope you liked it. If you did, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you'd like to leave us a five-star review, that would be lovely too. It would be a big help to us in getting the word out about the podcast. Today's episode has been written by Yulia Arens with executive production by me, Martin Pierce, and post-production by Branko Svedievich. We'll be back next week with another 
episode of Policy Forum Pod. In fact, our last episode of Policy Forum Pod for the year. But until then, from me, Martin Beast, cheerio. And from me, Sue Regan, cheerio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.